Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Curtis Lockhart, Head of Research at the Charter Cities Institute. Our guest for today is Nathan Nunn. Nathan is a professor of economics at Harvard University. His research ranges across development economics, political economy, economic history, and other areas, and especially focuses on the long-term impact of historical processes on economic development today, often mediated through factors like culture, social structures, norms, and institutions. Hi, Nathan. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks. It's my pleasure, and it's great to be here. I wanted to start by just putting it up to you, going over what projects you're currently working on today. What, what's taking up most of your time these days, other than, I guess, just pervasive anxiety over the general state of the world? <laughs> <laughs> a number of projects, but one that I've just finished is actually a review article called History as Evolution. And it's a bit of a summary. It's for the Handbook of Historical Economics. And it's a bit of a summary of the recent work within economics that takes a historical perspective and specifically an evolutionary perspective to help understand economic development today and differences across societies today. And so that drew a lot from evolutionary anthropology and thinking about how that field has influenced economic history. And so that's one of the things, although there's a number of other projects which are more primary research, just one that I'll mention because it's a bit different from what I normally do. It's looking at the Tulsa massacre of 1921, and next year will be the 100-year anniversary of the massacre. And that study just tries to understand what are the dynamic consequences of the massacre on African-Americans and kind of uses census data and traces out the consequences of the massacre in terms of economic consequences. And then we're hoping to kind of push that forward until today and look at the social consequences as well. So that's kind of a work in progress. And looking at U.S. history is a bit different from what I normally do. So that's fun. I thought first, because, you know, this is the first time that we have two Canadians on the podcast as both mm -hmm. host and guest, that we'd start there. So first and foremost, happy belated Canadian Thanksgiving. Thank you. <laughs> a big through line in your research is obviously like history matters for contemporary economic outcomes. I wonder if you've applied this framework to the question of why Canada's COVID response has been much better than the U.S. response. Like, what is it historically about Canadians and Canada that allowed us to meet this moment relatively better than our neighbors to the south? What's the Nathan Nunn framing of this? <laughs> the most proximate answer is, and I think along the lines that you're thinking, Culturally and politically, Canadians and Americans are very different. Having grown up in Canada, you kind of know that as Canadians, we recognize a lot of differences between Canadian culture and Canadians and Americans. And I think those can be seen also in the COVID response. I guess one is 
more within the United States, more of a distrust of government or more of a suspicion of government. And again, one would want to look at the data to make sure these things I'm saying off the cuff are true. But that's kind of one sense that one gets. And you can kind of see that in the fact that you have socialized healthcare or universal healthcare in Canada, but not the United States and higher taxes in Canada, more government involvement. And I think that's important for something like COVID in terms of one is people listening to the government and putting their faith in the government, but then also the government and a feeling like people will listen to them. It's their place to coordinate this massive effort in the face of this public health crisis. And you see two different paths between Canada and the United States. I guess one thing is in both countries, things are decentralized. So the provincial governments have a lot of, in terms of healthcare and the states within the United States. And so in British Columbia, which I've been following, there's Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's, I believe there's an article about her in the New York Times, actually. Yeah, I'm from Vancouver too. So I'm aware of Dr. Henry uh, following as well. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just luck. People say that the British Columbia has done exceptionally well, and it's just really lucky that she's there and she has the experience that she has. But I think there's also something about recognizing that there's a role for government to help coordinate these efforts and to play a role, which is super important for something that has these huge externalities, right? Something like this, where people just really have to contribute, even though it might not be in their material interest narrowly defined. They have to contribute to the greater good. And I guess somewhat continuing with the Canadian line of questioning, in a Canadian journal last year, you wrote this more big picture kind of bird's eye view article on rethinking development as it's currently practiced in both the policy, the development policy world and the academic world. I thought it was a fantastic discussion of the international development. So I guess first, foreign aid, right? I think rightfully take it a bit to task. One of the critiques mentioned is that foreign aid is oftentimes tied to strategic interests of the donor country, and this isn't good. So I guess playing devil's advocate a bit, why is this bad per se? It's the donor country's money. They're giving it away. Shouldn't they be able to place some sort of restrictions on it, like a lot of loans or or grants do? If I answer that question literally, shouldn't they be allowed to do that? then of course, yeah, they should be allowed to do that. But we shouldn't think that this is some sort of charitable act and that the motive is to only improve economic development in the foreign country. As soon as you're tying concessional loans or grants to exports from my country, that's more like export promotion, right? That's a way of having my products sold overseas. And you see this with food aid, for example, in the United States. And so it's totally fine. And the country's agreeing to accept that aid or accept those concessional loans. And so it's not bad in that sense. But if we think that is going to be the key to economic development, or that's what's really going to lift countries out of poverty, then I think there's questions surrounding that. Yeah. So that's how I would think of it. And you could think about, well, you know, maybe if we don't do that, (laughs) maybe that will actually help. So if we're giving aid, we give it with no strings attached. We don't give it in kind. So we don't ship U.S. wheat overseas to the country, but instead we give them cash. And those are, I think, the things that we should be thinking about. And people should be aware in terms of foreign aid, exactly what it is and what do we mean when we say foreign aid and how much of it is tied and those types of issues. How much of it is military aid, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very different than economic aid. You mentioned giving cash. So speaking of giving cash, you did mention some beneficial 
parts or subcomponents of foreign aid, one of which is unconditional cash transfers, right? There's been a few studies. One is the Postfer Shapiro studies in Kenya with Give Directly. And then I think more recently, there's a working paper by Banerjee and some co-authors that found that, you know, receiving a UBI, universal basic income during COVID lockdowns in Kenya helped individuals cope with the shock. So are you, I guess, most bullish on this particular component of aid, the potential of UBI or unconditional cash transfers and why or why not? Yeah, I would say yes. And I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done still, and it's being done. So you mentioned the paper by Johannes Haushofer and co-authors. He's on a few papers which are trying to evaluate the programs that give directly. There's a few things to like about it. And so one is just that the overhead is extremely low. So I think you can go on their website and you find it's a few percentage points. And so that's the amount. If you gave $100, how much is going to go to administrative costs and is not going to reach the recipients. And so for other forms of aid, I think it's much, much, much higher. So that's one good thing just based on efficiency. And then the other thing is, well, that allows people the most choice. And so if we're shipping products to them, for one thing, that's not very efficient, which I mentioned, but then also, you know, they don't have a lot of options. They can receive those products or not, but with unconditional cash transfer or universal basic income, then you have the money and you can do a lot with it and use it to buy many different products or to invest it or lend it or whatever. So I think the simplicity, the low costs, the flexibility, those are reasons to think that this could have benefits and maybe be the best strategy relative to all forms of giving that are out there. Mm -hmm. And I guess keeping on the subject of aid, another critique on top of the tide stuff we've already talked about is that it can actually increase conflict, I think you mentioned a bit. And this is especially true, I guess, pre-end of the Cold War. So having said this, does it worry you that it seems a lot of the world's big aid givers are moving more towards uh, tied in with foreign policy goals or somewhat repeating this Cold War dynamic with the rise of China, right? You have IFID merging with the British Foreign Office last month. You have the U.S.'s newly established Development Finance Corporation. And then on the other side, you have China's massive aid uh, development aid and Belt and Road. So I guess, what about this dynamic worries you when it comes to the effectiveness of foreign aid? And I don't know. You kind of nicely describe the issues and the concerns, but I don't know of much evidence about if the aid's going to be less effective or even more dangerous when they're, it's tied to politics in the way you describe. One thing I'll mention, which is, you know, I do have a paper that looks at food aid, U.S. food aid specifically wheat aid, and then looks at the effects of that. And you see that it does increase conflict. And then towards the end of the paper, we actually break it down by during the Cold War, after the Cold War, and you find the effects are similar. And also we looked at the recipient and do they seem to be aligned with the United States? And the effects are similar as well. So their kind of political alignment or the broader political structure globally didn't seem to matter in terms of how detrimental foreign aid was for conflict or how much it increased conflict. So uh, so according to that, that's a tiny bit of evidence and very indirect. Then, you know, these things might not matter. I would think that aid in general is almost always strategic and there's a political dimension, but I think it's a completely open question. And so you look at a few, I guess, after the critiques, you look at a few alternatives to aid. One is industrial policy and you kind of conclude that industrial policy isn't 
really a universal model, right? Because it's necessarily zero sum. Not everyone can be a South Korea. So I guess given this position, what are your thoughts on, he's now the former chief economist of the World Bank, Justin Lin. Justin Lin was pretty successful in kind of pushing to bring industrial policy back onto the World Bank's agenda. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So in that article, I didn't have a lot of time. You could imagine writing 50 pages on industrial policy. So my views are probably more optimistic than kind of what I focused on, which is the fact that a big chunk of industrial policy and tariffs is zero sum. So that consumers are going to consume domestic products rather than imports. And there might be some learning by doing and, and that sort of thing. And it comes at a cost in terms of your trade partners. But I think there's actually a lot of reasons or a lot of benefits to industrial policy, which are not zero sum. So for example, learning by doing effectively, if industrial policy is successful at inducing learning by doing, then producers are going to become more productive. And so that's an efficiency gain, right? It does mean that they outcompete others. So that's zero sum, but there's a lot of it that's actually non-zero sum. And then the other thing is if you think of that there are externalities in the world, which I believe production externalities and things like poverty traps, then industrial policy can help basically alleviate those issues. So just to take the poverty trap example, a temporary industrial policy could move a society from low income, high poverty equilibrium to a high income, low poverty equilibrium. And so if that can occur, that's kind of just like a pure gain or a pure efficiency gain. And it's not purely zero sum. So those are kind of open questions is whether part of industrial policy is non-zero sum for those. I think there's a little bit of research that's starting to occur to try and understand the effects of industrial policies, but I think we need much, much more. And so just as an example, actually, I think it's a neat paper by a scholar named Maddie Mitrinen, which he looks at industrial policy of Finland after World War II, where Finland had to produce certain products for the Soviet Union. They were forced to do this. So it's effectively an externally imposed industrial policy where there's forced production. But what happens is um, with this forced production of manufacturers, then uh, what he finds is factors respond endogenously and specifically education. So now there are higher incentives to, to accumulate human capital. Uh, the next generation goes to school and that's good for economic development. And so, so that might be an, another example of just a pure efficiency gain because the policy induces human capital accumulation. I want to discuss one more alternative day that you look at, which is reducing restrictions on the free movement of labor, right? Which you and then other studies suggest would have a huge impact on incomes, right? Larger than any uh, aid or one-off policy intervention. Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development, Lamp Pritchett, look at this as well. My question here is that removing labor restrictions or open immigration doesn't really strike me as the most politically feasible thing right now. I think you touch upon this in the paper. So my thing is, couldn't, well, I'm from this institution, so I'm a little biased, but couldn't charter <laughs> reforms, or, or you could just call it significant devolution to the city level, be a sort of plan B to open immigration that's a, a little more politically feasible? I'm thinking of, for example, Shenzhen, where the first actual markets were allowed to form in China in the 1980s, land markets, uh, FDI, labor markets. 
And people then moved to the city pretty much en masse for decades. And they're significantly better off than the population in general. This obviously isn't the free international labor mobility you and Clemens and others call for, but can it be considered as a, I guess, second best option given the political constraints to immigration right now? So possibly. So I just want to make sure I understand. So are you referring to like Paul Romer's charter cities or something slightly different? Something slightly different, okay. but for all intents and purposes, we could, for this question, think of charter cities as just significant devolution of authorities to the local level, which is what Shenzhen and other city-states got. Yeah, so that's super interesting, actually. And I guess a few things. One is, are those two things substitutes? <laughs> because part of the benefits of the devolution of authority to cities is then cities can kind of compete with one another. And then the best practices can survive and then be adopted and that sort of thing. And I guess one question is, is part of the competition also competing for people? And so you mentioned then a lot of people then move to these successful cities. And so that's movement within a country. But it seems like for these charter cities, that's also important is the movement within movement in general. And then just one other thing is, which I don't know, I'm sure you're much more the expert is how politically feasible are these? So a national government, are they willing to basically relinquish control or authority in a city or in these smaller regions? And so I don't know how. Uh, <laughs> that also sounds like it might not be super feasible politically, but I don't know enough about it. So I would say that just thinking about an analogous concept in special economic zones, SEZs, which we see kind of charter cities as SEZs on mm -hmm. steroids a bit, there are over 5,000 SEZs operating around the globe. So there has been a demonstrated appetite by governments to do this sort of thing. I guess just not with the scope and breadth of devolved authority that we think would be. I can see there's helpful. definitely between these kind of special economic zones and charter cities, there is a bit of a difference that makes the former much more appealing politically. And then one thing I'll say, though, is there's a lot to like about having these smaller units have kind of autonomy so that they can try different policies or try different strategies. I think I mentioned before externalities and I think Danny Roderick has written about this is when a firm or a government tries something and fails, there's huge externalities to others and positive externalities because a lot is learned. And so you learn actually what you're not good at, what are the mistakes, what are the pitfalls. And similarly, when you succeed, there's huge externalities, right? And so that's kind of one thing I like about the idea of having kind of smaller units have some independence over policy and are able to try things. And then the other thing too is like often local context really, really, really matters. And the central national government or foreign academics in D.C. or the World Bank in D.C. or NGOs really don't have the same knowledge about the local context. And so that's another thing to like about that strategy. I definitely agree that there's possibility that that would be effective. Yeah. Carrying on the labor mobility point, it kind of, I guess, ties into a common theme in your work that persistence, I guess, is transmitted through the people, the societies, not so much the places. So I guess having said this, if we look at the U.S. and trace some migrant groups, most studies suggest that Nigerians are among the most successful immigrant populations in the U.S. So how do you explain this with your framework? Is there something in 
Nigeria's history that helps explain their relative success when transplanted as migrants? That's interesting. So yeah, I didn't know that fact, or I haven't looked at different groups of immigrants in the US and which ones are the most successful. It doesn't surprise me because there are a lot of groups within Nigeria that are extremely entrepreneurial. So the Igbo in southeastern Nigeria would be one group that comes to mind. So it completely doesn't surprise me. And in terms of why, that's a tougher question. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that's a tougher question. I think Nigeria is massive and it's very diverse. You have groups like the Hausa in the north, which are Muslim. And so they, I think historically, I believe, have a higher level of education. But exactly why Nigeria and not Ghana, for example, in terms of economic success in the United States, I don't have a clear explanation. One thing Mark, CCI's executive director, likes to joke about at our office is that new cities or agglomerations typically come about from three things. One is you can have a government declare a new capital city, you can have an economic rationale, or you can start a religion, right? There's Salt Lake mm -hmm. City, there's Massachusetts and the Pilgrims, Israel and other places. Obviously, the most common is an economic rationale, but it strikes me that in large parts of Africa, where the slave trade was most intense, this economic rationale wasn't really at, at play, right? Many agglomerations formed in places that were actively uneconomical in order to avoid the slave trade. And you discuss this in your ruggedness paper. How do you think this has affected the structure of current African cities? What are the implications given the rapid urbanization happening across Africa? I know in the data that we've looked at, in the past that this isn't about cities, but where people live, that those effects that you're talking about have persisted. That in Africa, more than any other continent, people tend to live in more rugged places. Within their region, they're more likely to live in the most rugged places. Yeah, so those persist. I think the issue of urbanization might actually be orthogonal to those issues. A lot of the urbanization has been very recent and pretty rapid. And then, so one question is, well, what yeah, kind of the path dependent to urbanization, right? They settle in these rugged places and that snowballs in cities form in these not economically optimal locations. Yeah. So I guess I would want to look at the data and see, yeah, is that the case that's, you know, the location of cities in particular tend to be suboptimal. And then another model or another story is during the slave trade, populations were spread out because they were trying to escape the slave trade. And over time, with the rise of cities, then populations have been moving away from these places, which are more rugged or more remote, and moving to city centers. And so kind of what you're describing is cities were located in these places that weren't very economically advantageous. And through agglomeration and path dependence, that that's continued. And so... I'm not sure. I haven't looked at cities specifically to see which of those two stories that I just described is true. And so it is something I've kind of thought about is why is urbanization rates seem to be pretty high in Africa, particularly relative to the income levels. And mm -hmm. so why is that? Is it insecurity? There's a lot of conflict within Africa. Is that part of it? Or are there other explanations as well? So Picking up on this urbanization question, historically, you alluded to this, it has been accompanied with a bunch of these other things that are so, supposed to be you know, associated with economic development, higher incomes, you mentioned industrialization, right, non-agriculture jobs. But these things 
they seem not to be associated much with African urbanization. Danny Roderick writes about this with premature deindustrialization. So why isn't Africa seeing the same improvements that have historically come with urbanization in other places, do you think? That's the big question. I think some of what Danny Roderick's written is about lack of manufacturing, but then the question is, well, why is that? And so, yes, I think that's basically, given that so much of growth, particularly early on, comes from urbanization or from urban areas, including the rise of manufacturing. I think that's kind of really a question that's part of a bigger question about why is Africa so much less developed than any other region in the world? And, you know, there's been a lot of research done on this. I know this was a big puzzle when I was in grad school. And I think, you know, one part of the puzzle is the particular history of Africa. And colonial rule is particularly extractive, even though it was relatively short. And also Africa experienced the slave trade was another form of external extraction. And I think both of these had detrimental impacts on long-run institutions, on governance today, and explain, at least empirically, seem to explain a big chunk of Africa's underdevelopment. I'm sure there's many different channels. And so, so I think the answer to that question is really will provides insights into why is urbanization and success from urbanization different in Africa relative to the rest of the world. And I guess on that note, you mentioned the slave trade. So turning to one of your more famous papers with co-author Leonard Wanchukon, who we're also going to have on the podcast in the next few months, the paper about the slave trade on trust levels in, in African countries today. So first, I guess, what were you and Leonard examining just to lay out the paper and, and what were your kind of high level findings? So I had a previous paper, which came up in QJE, which looked at the slave trade, which is this massive enslavement of individuals within Africa from about 1400 to 1900 AD. And that was correlating the number of people taken from a location, which today is a country, with the level of economic development of the country today. So, so I, I present, he actually invited me to NYU where he was at the time. I presented that research there. And then we were talking afterwards and he was really excited about the research agenda. And one thing that he thought was, well, in Benin, where he was from, he really felt that he could see, in reality, a correlation between the slave trade and then distrust, basically. And mm-hmm. so that those parts of Benin where the slave trade was more prevalent, that people trusted each other less. And there are even some idioms or sayings where rather than saying, I don't trust this person, you say, this person would sell me into slavery. So it was kind of something that based on his living and growing up in Benin, saw this on the ground. And then so we basically looked at it in the data by combining ethnicity level information on the number of slaves captured from each ethnic group and information from the Afrobarometer, which is the average trust levels of different ethnic groups. And we found consistent with his conjecture that ethnic groups that had the most slaves taken today have the lowest levels of trust in others. And that's even trust of those within the ethnic group and trust of family members and neighbors. And so trust of those close to you seems like it was eroded by the slave trade. I keep bringing this back to cities. Forgive me. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in it. But as I was reading (laughs) the paper, I was thinking like, oh, cool. The, The correlates of trust are also kind of the correlates of urbanization, right? Education, income, number of cooperative interactions between people. So I guess this kind of begged the question, 
and I know there's many pathways here, but do urbanites in African countries have higher levels of trust than rural Africans? Or I guess put a little differently, is this one reason to be really optimistic about the rapid urbanization rates in Africa right now? Especially, I guess, the relatively unurbanized parts of the continent like East Africa. So one could look at the data pretty quickly and see, is that the case? And I don't think it is the case, actually. It's hard to know because education is correlated with urbanization. And so the conditional correlation of urbanization and trust really depends on what other things you're controlling for. So are you controlling for the education of an individual? I actually looked at that relationship and it's actually not positive. So it's not clear, actually. And the reason I looked at it was actually, I have this other paper, which was with James Robinson, Sarah Lowe's, and Jonathan Weigel, which is about this historical kingdom called the Kuba Kingdom. And much to our surprise, being part of this kingdom was not positively associated with more pro-social behavior. So in other words, it's kind of negatively associated with pro-social behavior, and which was surprising to us because... The kingdom was much more prosperous. It was more urban. It had all these great things going for it. And yet we found this relationship. And so then we looked at the Afrobarometer and looked at the relationship between trust and urbanization and also trust that an individual has and in how politically centralized or how politically developed that ethnic group was in the pre-industrial period or prior to colonialism. And there actually, in lots, it depends on the exact regression, but in lots of those regressions, you find a negative relationship. So trust seems to be lower in places that are more urbanized or historically were more economically developed. And so, like I said, it's tricky because <laughs> it's a correlation and the strength of the relationship hinges on whether you control for education, things like that. And so that was never published, but we kind of were digging into that in part as response to referee reports on the paper. So I think that's an open question, actually. You can kind of think that the correlation is going to be driven by a number of things. So if in urban environments, you know, things are a bit more dangerous, it's easier for people to rip you off, then trust could be lower. But then urban environments can have more economic opportunity. So then there's more opportunities for successful interactions that would induce trust to be higher. And then there could be selection of different types of people into the urban settings. And so, yeah, so it's a tricky, tricky question. Looking at trust today in the country we're, we're both living in right now, trust, you alluded to this in the first question about COVID, trust in political leaders, it seems to be at a pretty all-time low, especially in the U.S. I'm thinking, right, there was a time when FDR, he went on the radio in the middle of a bank run and he told folks to go back to their bank when it opened on Monday and redeposit their money. And people listened to him, right? Like, they trusted him. And that seems insane now, like a completely different world. So, I guess, given your research into trust levels and their broader implications and applying that to US and trust today, what is your best prediction for? where the U.S. is headed in the short, medium, long term. And feel free to be more speculative here because I know the U.S. isn't your area of research per se. Yeah, I guess the U.S. could go in different directions and maybe the outcome of the upcoming election in whatever it is, 10 days, 9 days, is going to indicate that a lot or have an effect on that a lot and provide some indication of how things are going to occur. In terms of trust, though, in general, I think I kind of believe in the contact hypothesis. So. There's other groups in general, and you might be inclined to have lower levels of trust with them, but when you interact, then you tend to 
update positively. There's a lot of work on this, but Gautam Rao, who's in my department, has some nice evidence of this that's kind of very causally identified looking at children in India. And so finding evidence of contact hypothesis. And so I think a lot of what could happen in the future, I think, has to do with immigration, which is why I'm mentioning this. So if the U.S. remains more insular or parts of the U.S. remain more insular, there's less contact with the outside world, then I think what you'll have is lower levels of trust in general. And so there's some great work by Ben Enke, which is looking at this. And if you think of trust, one way to think of this is Well, everyone trusts people close to them a fair amount. So your wife, your neighbors, your family, friends. And then, but what seems to be different is, do you trust people that are further away from you? Mm -hmm. Which is again, why I spoke about immigrants. And that's where there's a different slope in how distant someone is and then how much trust is lower and is reduced in distance. And so, and so if we think about low trust, really it's actually having groups which have high trusts in people around them who are close to them, but not people further away from them. And so Ben has some really nice data basically showing this, and he calls this universal morality versus group-based morality. And so Mm. the U.S. has a lot of group-based morality or group-specific morality. And, you know, rural regions, the South, for example. And so it's not that people aren't altruistic, but then they really just focus on helping those and trusting those that are close to them. And those that are more distant, like immigrants, they have less trust and less altruism towards them. So I think, you know, immigration has been central in politics recently, and it's a part of the issues for this election. And so I think it really depends on the current election and whether populist rhetoric continues to take hold, which is very group-based, or whether there's kind of a turn in the U.S. It's kind of more open and globally, which I think can help along these lines. Do you worry, this is just me kind of responding to what you said about the contact theory. Do you worry about the ubiquity or the rapid penetration of cell phones and social media across Africa, how it happened so quickly? Because I'm looking at the impacts of social media in other places where there's data available, and it does seem to have an isolating effect or an insular effect where it can foster more in-group mentalities. And so that wouldn't bode well for your contact theory to foster trust in Africa. Do you think about this at all? I know your research is more historical, but I'm curious about your thoughts. It's not something I studied or thought a lot about, but in theory, I guess, the internet, social media should provide you access to individuals that are further away or more different, but doesn't mean that that's what happens in reality, I guess. So with social media, you might end up forming a community of individuals which are really, really similar to you. So a lot of a sort of positive assortative matching. And so, yeah, so I think that's possible in terms of an issue. I guess in the parts of Africa, which I've been, social media really hasn't taken hold in the same way that it has in the US. But I can see what you're saying in the US for sure. And so, you know, whether it's social media is to blame or not <laughs> is a question, but it seems like now there's a lot less, and people have talked about this, John Haidt, for example, there's a lot less diversity in neighborhoods in terms of political opinions. 
uh, in terms of social groups. And so there's a lot less discussion or discourse or debate. And it's part of the U.S. becoming much, much more polarized. And the polarization can be associated with social media. And so I can see that these are an issue just from everyday life. But in the parts of Africa that I'm in, I think it's not near as big of an issue as in the United States. But that doesn't mean that that won't be the case in the future. But yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting set of questions, though. So I have some questions more just about historical economic development research, and I guess economic research more generally here. So Mm -hmm. another well-known study about cultural norms is the the UN parking ticket paper by Fisman and Miguel. What were your takeaways from this paper when it comes to shaping cultural norms or the impact of laws and culture? Well, I think the big thing about that paper and its main contribution at the time and even today was that it provided evidence for culture. And so that was an important first step, I think, within the economics literature. And so the way it did it was by examining this natural experiment where you had people from different cultural backgrounds, and they're in one setting, one kind of naturally occurring game, if you will, and where the rules of the game are held constant. And then what they show is that, well, people behave systematically differently based on their cultural background. And so people from countries that have a higher rating of corruption. They did it with exploiting the UN diplomatic community in New York around parking tickets, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So individuals which were from these countries with higher corruption, they accumulated more unpaid parking tickets. Yeah. And they were all diplomats that were stationed in Manhattan or that were located in Manhattan. So so in that sense, they're all facing the same decision. They have the same payoffs because they're all immune to paying, exempt from paying parking tickets or they don't have to because of diplomatic immunity. And then you find people behave systematically different. And so the one thing they had, which was kind of interesting, the back of the paper, and so I think lots of people miss it, but they actually looked at the dynamics of behavior of individuals over time. And one thing they found was, okay, when somebody first got there, then if you're from Sweden, for example, you're going to have less unpaid parking tickets. And then those from a more corrupt country are going to have a higher. But over time, actually, those from a less corrupt country their behavior converged to those from a more corrupt country. And so their kind of background morals were brought over, but over time, it seems like these groups became more homogenous as maybe incentives took over. So yeah, I thought it was a very super interesting paper. And you you can kind of test for culture by bringing lab games to different parts of the world, but this was kind of a, a really smart, intelligent, natural setting that you could also test for cultural differences. Paul Samuelson famously asked to name a proposition in all social science that was both true and non-trivial. And he said comparative advantage. And I'm finding myself reading a lot of social science papers and kind of shrugging and being like, you know, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's not too surprising. So I want to ask you the same question. If you had to select a phenomenon or proposition in development economics, or just generally across your reading mm-hmm. that's both true and non-trivial, what do you think that would be? Yeah, exactly. One thing which I think is likely true and non-trivial, and I think the insight hasn't been brought into economics, is actually the notion of group-level selection from basically evolutionary studies or evolutionary anthropology. And so and this is actually related to our discussion about charter cities. This is arguably one of the benefits is that 
when you have groups which are competing against one another, you can have inequilibrium traits or actions which are not individually beneficial, but are socially beneficial. So in other words, people being extremely cooperative, people helping each other out, even though it comes at a cost to them. Like locking down during a pandemic. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so that would be. But the interesting thing is, what is group level competition, which induces group level selection? Things like warfare is an example historically of group level competition. So certain states fighting other states or certain villages fighting other villages. Population pressures so that there's scarcity of resources and there's competition in that way. So this thing that we think of is typically you know, not a great thing or not a great outcome. And it's true. It's not a great outcome for welfare actually has these benefits because it causes groups to compete against other groups. And then that induces traits or behaviors which are beneficial for the group. And so I think that's one thing which is actually outside of economics. It's kind of in evolutionary biology or evolutionary anthropology. It's pretty standard insight within economics and economic history. It's not recognized. And and it does provide a particular framework or a way of understanding research like Charles Tilley or people who hypothesize that the rise of Europe was because of all the conflict that there was within Europe. And that might have had to do with its geography. And basically, you know, it's almost like a survival of the fittest. I think you said states make war and war makes states, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there it's kind of like, well, the trait is actually, you know, better governance, better states, states that could survive. Yeah. So I think that would be one example. That's probably true. And it's not you know, kind of like comparative advantage. It's not immediately obvious. I like it. You didn't take that long for that one. I'm genuinely impressed. I'm told from the story I read of Paul Samuelson, he took a long time to answer. So oh, okay. Well I didn't know that was an option. I could come back to you tomorrow. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about a couple co-authors and colleagues of yours. So again, you wrote that famous paper on the slave trade and mistrust in Africa with Leonard. And Leonard is, as I said, he's coming on the podcast in the next few months. So I wanted to ask you, what should I ask Leonard? I would ask him if he's willing to talk about his history, to tell his story about how he got from Benin to now he's a tenured professor at Princeton, actually. It's an amazing story. He was a political refugee, hid out for a while then was a refugee in Canada, did his research very quickly. I think his PhD was done in a number of years. So it's a pretty remarkable story. And so he's a really amazing person as well. The other thing is, you know, ask him about the African School of Economics. And so mm. he's very passionate about that. And it's an amazing endeavor. And he's an extremely ambitious guy who wants to give back to the continent. And so if it was me, I'd be wanting to hear all those stories. And the ASC isn't just in Benin anymore, right? It's in multiple countries now. I believe he has multiple campuses. Yeah, I spoke with him a few weeks ago. I didn't get the full details, but yeah, that's the plan actually is to have these other campuses and courses offered in, I think it was four or five different places around Africa. Yeah, it's very impressive. And students have been graduating and getting serious jobs. And so I think it's really going to increased diversity within the economic discipline, which is fantastic. It's going to increase the number of people doing development, but also working in other fields that are from Africa, which is hugely important because I think actually knowing something about these regions that we're studying is hugely important. And people who are born and raised there are for sure in the best position to know. And so it's just really amazing. Yeah. Another colleague of yours is Melissa Dell. Obviously, you both care about history 
she's got these two great papers. She's got many great papers, but these two in particular, one of the famous, one of the long run impacts of the MITA, right, the forced labor mines mm-hmm. in Peru, and one on the effects of Dutch colonial sugar plantations in Java. And I guess just a brief summary of the paper, so you don't have to. She comes, I guess, to two different conclusions in the paper. Right? In Peru, those areas in the MITA forced labor system are poorer and less well-educated today. Whereas in Java, the areas with sugar plantations are actually more prosperous today. And she pretty much says that she thinks the reason for this disparity, this difference, has to do with the underlying industrial structure of mining versus sugar, right? Mining was mm-hmm. just purely extractive, whereas sugar required local processing and linkages and infrastructure. So my question is, do you think this same story plays out in various places in Africa? There's mining, there's plantation farming. Has a similar story played out? Yeah. So I guess a similar story in the sense that the answer is not always straightforward and not always obvious. I think in the literature, a lot of people have toyed around with the question, you know, was colonialism good or bad for Africa? And that's kind of a little bit in the spirit of the research that she's doing. And I think her research is showing that just exactly as you described, that while it depends on exactly the types of activities which were implemented or were undertaken, I think the same thing is the case within Africa. And the other thing I would say is I think it's probably the case that the same activities in different countries might have different effects as well, or the same activities undertaken by different colonizers or different foreign entities could have different effects as well. And so that's one of the lessons which I take from her body of research. And each paper does a really good job of saying, you know, what's the effect of this historical episode I'm looking at? She always nails it. But then taking as a whole, one thing I think is nice is an overly simplistic story does not emerge. And so within Africa, for example, like diamond mining would be an example. And the same endowment, the same type of mining... You know, I would imagine it's going to have very different effects in Sierra Leone versus South Africa. And so just because the underlying institutions are different, the amount of law and order, these sorts of things. And so I think for lots of these things, I guess the point is there's just like a huge amount of heterogeneity that depends on a lot of the underlying context. And all our regressions, we always assume like that the coefficients aren't indexed by anything. Beta is just beta. But I think in reality, for lots of these things, it depends in really important ways on the details of a particular setting. So I'm sure that's the case for Africa, which is a huge continent and has a lot of heterogeneity within it. Looking at your research, how do you choose what you work on? Because it struck me as I was reading through your work, you do the history stuff. Okay, yes, history matters, history matters. But then you write about contracts and then you write about food aid and foreign aid, which we talked about. And you've written about fair trade and tariffs and gender and missionaries. So is there any order or logic (laughs) for what we select to tackle next? Or is it just more ad hoc and chaos? Give us a little... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not too structured. I think the one thing I'm interested in is kind of understanding the world around me. And so I guess what questions I ask are influenced by just what questions come to mind. And so... Early on, it was a lot of questions about economic development. And so that led me to think about Africa and, you know, why is Africa different? We talked about that fact. And that led me to then think about history because it just seemed clear to me that 
current development can be explained almost trivially by what happened the last 10, 20 years, which then that is a function of what happened 10 or 20 years earlier. And you can keep doing that and going back in time. So I think it's like impossible to understand development today without history. And just lots of the like fair trade, food aid, these were just kind of issues that are related to development, which I was interested in. And then the one thing I'll say is actually now in this theme about wanting to understand the world in general, now that I've lived in the U.S. for 15 years, I find myself really drawn to thinking about why is the U.S. the way it is? Lots of the questions that you posed <laughs> earlier mm-hmm. are things that I'm now thinking about toying around with data. The, the paper on the Tulsa massacre is along those lines and just came out of you know my wanting to understand what explains the way the U.S. is today. And I think similar to Africa, history plays a big role. And America has a particularly unique history. And I think that explains a lot of it. Yeah, the short answer is just curiosity about what's going on around me. Another thing is, so you seem to encourage development economists to kind of zoom out a bit from the overwhelming focus on RCTs and see that there's some other methods and disciplines that can also contribute to answering these very important questions. So you obviously go deep into the historical literature and archives that we've talked about, but have also talked about anthropological, psychological, sociological literatures. So I wonder if you could talk about a few anthropologists or sociologists, what have you, that have been impactful or informed your work and how. Yeah, so I think definitely the biggest influence outside of the discipline on me. One depends if you call James Robinson a non-economist, so which is one reason why I'm pausing. So if you call him a political scientist, then I think his research and just talking to him one-on-one, particularly when he was at Harvard before he moved to Chicago, had a huge influence on me. And he reads extensively anthropology, all the disciplines that you just listed. So. So that's a first. It depends. But many people would just say he's an economist, so which, which I would agree with. Yeah, I'm not that one, Nathan. need to give me other non-economists. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So then also Joe Henrik, who's at Harvard. So Joseph Henrik, he has a great book recently called The Secret of Our Success, which basically does a really nice job of explaining why we have culture, why we have feelings, why we have traditions as human beings. And uh, according to him, that's actually the reason why we're the most successful animal in the world. And that's what makes humans different than other animals, including non-human primates. Yeah, so he's great. Actually, him, James Robinson, and I co-taught a course on cultural evolution at Harvard a couple of years ago now, four or five years ago. And that was fantastic. I learned a huge amount from both of them. And then other evolutionary anthropologists, Michael Muthukrishna, who's at London School of Economics. He has a number of really fantastic papers and I've learned a lot from reading reading his research as well. And then I'll just mention one historian who I think is really great, African historian. This is Joseph Inikori. I think he's retired now, but he's a historian who's a big picture thinker. He has a really fantastic book about the importance of Africa for the British Industrial Revolution and how much of the Industrial Revolution is due to the three-corner trade. And so he was another guy that I very much enjoyed interacting with, particularly early in my career. So I should have asked you this earlier when we were talking about other disciplines, but what aspects of these other disciplines, right, anthropology, psychology, et cetera, are you most interested in bringing into economics? More talking about more specific mechanisms or anthropological idiosyncrasies. You've written about bride prices and 
historical gender norms and other things. What are other mechanisms or factors from these disciplines that you're looking to bring into your future research? So I think just anthropology in general, if you start reading anthropology and ethnographies and research about Africa, the big thing that you hear about is kinship and family and social structures, age sets, these sorts of things. And that's one thing in development economics I never heard about at all until grad school, then reading these anthropological sources. But when you go on the ground and you start talking to people and you ask them about these things, they're hugely important even today, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that anthropology can really contribute to development economics is actually describing, talking about, theorizing these things, which are so central to life in Africa or many developing countries. And so because we have ancestry that from Western Europe and historically you basically had a breakdown of clans, lineages. Western Europeans became very individualistic. We have a view and a worldview that's very different than the worldview of most developing countries. And so I think reading these ethnographies is hugely helpful. So that's from anthropology. And then from evolutionary anthropology, I think the big benefit there is that literature talks about and tries to understand where differences in culture come from and differences in behavioral traits. And so I think if you think of behavioral economics, you know, what we tend to do is document ways in which we deviate from rationality. And we're kind of very far from saying, okay, how do those deviations vary across societies? In other words, how do our cultural traits vary across societies? And then developing models to try and understand, well, why would they be different, right? And so evolutionary anthropology is probably like 30, 40 years ahead along those lines. And, and they have some models and they have a number of tests and hypotheses and have done a lot more measurement to measure basically cross-cultural variation. So that's just two examples. But I think there's tons of insights, benefits that a grad student can get from reading outside of economics. One of your colleagues at Harvard is a great institutional and political economist, Alberto Alessina, who you've co-authored with. He sadly passed away earlier this year. What are some lessons you learned from him as an economist, and I guess more generally as a person? Any good Alessina stories? <laughs> yeah, so a lot as a person. So you know, for anyone who's met him, he's an amazing, amazing individual, super friendly, extremely inclusive, always wanted to talk to students, talk to new people at Harvard. You know, even if you weren't a Harvard student, you're someone passing through or visiting, uh, very passionate about political economy and you know, wanting to push it forward, as he would say, it's a real field, just like any other. And so he was great in that dimension. And then he was also just an extremely fun guy. So, you know, one of the things I've learned from him is that research can and should be fun. And so, you know, whether you're in a seminar or giving feedback on people's research, that there's a way to do it such that it's enjoyable. It's still serious and we learn a lot and we're kind of focused, but there's no reason that it shouldn't be fun. And then more academically, the thing I've learned from him probably was to really focus on big picture questions and don't start to chase little questions which are unimportant. And I think if you look at his research, it's broad, vast. He's writing on all different types of topics and writing with many different people. But all of his papers were tackling these big picture questions. And I think that's why he obviously published very well and was very influential. And I think that's a big mm -hmm. part of the reason. Yeah. 
and political economy is definitely a field now. So that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's his yeah. legacy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great way to end it. Nathan Nunn, thanks again for coming on the podcast and for the great discussion. Really appreciate it. Great. This is my pleasure. And it was fantastic and lots of fun to chat. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.